For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You may be seated. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27 this morning. As you're turning in your copy of Scripture to that passage, Luke 6, 27 through 49, just to remind you this coming Sunday, a week from today, is Easter. We'll have a, a regular worship service at 1030 in the morning right here in the worship center. So uh, be sure to be here for that. Also, I want to remind you, if you didn't know, on Friday at 5.30 p.m. we'll be having a Good Friday service here in uh, the worship center. It's about 30, 45 minutes. We'll be taking communion together as a way of remembering uh, Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, and uh, so if you want to make time to come out, Good Friday, that's this coming Friday. Am I right on that, Todd? Okay, Good Friday, this coming Friday, 5.30 p.m. Uh, right here. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 49 Jesus Changes Us is the title of the message, and the assumption that Jesus makes as he is uh, teaching in this section of the Scripture, because this is a really, really important part of, of Jesus' ministry here, is this sermon that he's, we're looking at here in Luke chapter 6. But there's an assumption made here by Jesus at, that we might see things in some ways similar to how he sees them, and I'm, I'm afraid we don't. And so, unfortunately for you, we're going to start in Matthew, and then eventually we're going to get to Luke, uh, probably around uh, lunchtime. So, let's start in Matthew chapter 7, the parable of, um, did I say Matthew 7? That's what I meant, good. Uh, no, that's not it. It's Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 21, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Why am I telling, reminding us of this parable? Here it is. Because relationships in our modern day, more and more, I might suggest, are becoming what I would describe relationships in the modern culture this way, and Jesus is very countercultural, is our relationships generally are, are transactional. And what I mean by transactional is this, is generally when we're functioning in relationship with others, there's a certain amount of your pain that we can handle as long as there's some benefit coming back and forth. So there's some, 
give and take. Now, the best way of understanding this is maybe in the employee-employer relationship. You will gripe and complain about your boss, but every two weeks, it's okay because the check shows up. But at a certain point, that check isn't big enough for the amount of pain that boss is. So that's a description of a transactional relationship. You might, uh, any, a business relationship might be this way. If you have a partnership with, in business, somebody, you can deal with a certain amount of their being uh, rude or uh, conniving or untruthful as long as there's a, a financial return that makes it worth the effort. And you would suggest, we would say, well, well, we would never do this in friendships or in marriages or as parents, but actually that's turning out to be more and more the case is all of our relationships start to be evaluated on what's the dividend return here. And at a certain point, if this relationship isn't paying off to a degree that outweighs the, the difficulty of it, then you know what? I think it's time that this relationship is, is redefined. And we would say that what I'm saying is that's a transactional way of looking at relationships. There's give and take, but I want at the end of the day for my relationships on balance to pay off. Jesus is very countercultural. He says, no, 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 I don't want your relationships to function that way. So he tells this parable to remind us on how relationships are supposed to function. So there's this kingdom. And this king is settling accounts with his servants. And one of his servants owes an amount of money that could never be repaid. I mean, simply there was enough time in this guy's life to earn the necessary funds to repay the king. And so what the king decides to do is to sell him and his family and at least you know, mitigate his losses, so to speak. The servant begs and begs the king, please don't do this, don't do this. I don't want to be separated from my family and my children. Uh, give me some time. I'll figure it out. And the king finally says, forget about it. Your debt's canceled. And the Bible tells us in the parable anyway, the reason he did this is because he had pity on the servant. So it's a really astounding thing the king did. Instead of just asking the guy to give him all the money he had, that's one of the things he could have done, right? Well, I tell you what, just give me everything you have and we'll call it even. He doesn't even do that. He cancels the debt and he receives no return at all from this servant for the debt that he's owed. And the king does this and he receives no benefit. So why would a king do something that derives zero benefit to him? In fact, there could be some negative benefits. What if word gets out that he's canceling debts? What are the other servants going to start doing? I can't pay it. And all of a sudden, your kingdom is full of whiny servants who won't pay you back. There's a lot of negatives that could happen here. And the king, why, so why would the king do something that derives no benefit to himself and could potentially cause him problems? Because he values it. Because that's the kind of kingdom he wants. That's the only reason a king would do this, is if he's saying, you know the kind of kingdom I want is the kind of kingdom where these kinds of things are forgiven. So the, this servant goes out, and he finds another one of his servants, fellow servants, who owes him a smaller amount of money. In fact, a much smaller amount of money. In fact, amount of money that is very manageable for repayment. So this could be repaid, and this servant physically assaults his fellow servant, choking him, and has him thrown into prison until the debt can be repaid, which makes no sense at all. What I'm going to do is throw you in prison so you can no longer go to work to earn the money to repay this debt. You could easily pay back if you could go to work. 
And the king becomes very angry when he discovers it from his fellow servants, and he's brought before them. And why is the king upset? Think about it. Why is the king upset? He has nothing to be upset about. He's not going to get any money out of this servant. He's already forgiven the debt. So he, he's, what is he upset about? He's upset that his kingdom isn't operating the way he wants it to. He's upset. No, 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 that's not, the kind of, that's not what we do here. No, no we're, the, we're a forgiving kingdom. We're, when you have debts, you just wipe them away. I thought I, I thought I made that abundantly clear that the value of this kingdom is in the ability to forgive debt. And can this servant afford to forgive the debt? Of course he can. He no longer owes this massive debt he owed prior. So the king here is not upset about the money. He's upset that the value of the kingdom was being shirked by this servant. He didn't get it. He he says, I don't want your relationships to be transactional while you get along with your fellow servant if it pays off for you. What is he saying? I want you to get along with your fellow servants because I get along with you. So this is fundamentally different than a transactional relationship. Instead of you and I evaluating if the, the relationships with each other pay off, what we do is, is my relationship with the king paying off? If the answer is yes, then I don't need my relationships here to pay off because I already have enough from the king. This is a fundamental reality of how relationships are supposed to function in the kingdom of God. And this is fundamentally different than how most people operate in their uh, relationships with one another. We have to understand Jesus has this value as the king. I don't want to give away the end of the Bible, but he's the king. If you haven't read the Revelation yet, spoiler alert, he wins. The king is, it wants a kingdom where people are forgiving each other. Because of the tremendous amount of forgiveness he has granted. And if we don't understand the king values that, when we get over to Luke chapter 6 and start looking what he's going to talk about, it doesn't make any sense. So with that in mind, let's now go back to the passage that we're talking about this morning. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. So all of that doesn't count on my time. We haven't even got to my time yet. I'll let you know when we start it. I'm kidding. I don't care what time it is. Jesus changes how we relate to others. Read with me verses 27 through 31 of Luke chapter 6. But I say to you uh, who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand the back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, do you see what I'm saying? There's there's no way you could do what Jesus is talking about here if you needed a relationship to pay off on the horizontal level. The only way this passage works is if you recognize the king has granted you such favor that you can be generous in the relationships you have with one another. Christ-like humility and love are the driving values of all relationships in the kingdom of God. Christ-like humility, Christ-like love is the driving value of all of our relationships in the kingdom of God. 
and not just to those who love us back, but even to those who are opposed to us or opposed to Jesus. So Christ-like humility and love is the driving value in the kingdom of God, regardless of what response we might generate from the people we are uh, relating with this. Verses 27 through 31 remind us that the value here is Jesus' love showing up in powerful ways and expressed to others in generous, sort of over-the-top ways. I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Well, that doesn't sound great at all. That sounds terrible. I want to love the people who will reciprocate that love. And Jesus say, no, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who are unkind to you. Bless those who curse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. I need it to be known how much self-control I'm using right now to not make uh, Will Smith jokes. I think that might cancel it out, me saying it, but I just can't, if I don't, if I don't put it out there and say, you know, let's mark this up on the scorecard. I'm not making Will Smith jokes right now. Okay, so to the one who, what this is, is the ability, because Christ suffered on our behalf, to say, you know what, I can take abuse and insult from someone else, that I can take mistreatment because Jesus is enough for me. That this humility and Christ-like love can be expressed to people even when it's not reciprocated. And more than that, even when people are offensive in return. That when I am insulted and my reputation is torn down or lies are made up about me or you, that we can say, you know what? Jesus is enough for me. I don't need this relationship with you to pay off for me. Verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We call this the golden rule. It's kind of a rephrasing of the golden rule from Matthew. As you would wish for others to do to you, do so to them. There's a great example of somebody obeying the golden rule in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's a fantastic example of it. The guy obeying the golden rule is a guy named Haman in the book of Esther. Now, if you know Haman in the book of Esther, he's the bad guy. He was working to try and annihilate the Jewish people. And he was doing a pretty good job at setting up the situation where the Jewish people would be annihilated. And he was making his way to the king's uh, chambers where he was going to, you know, ask for something else. And the, the king had discovered that a reward should be owed to somebody in the kingdom. In fact, the reward was owed to Haman's arch enemy. And now Haman is coming in to do a devious act, and, and the king comes in as Haman walked in, and the king says, you know, Haman, what should I do for the person I seek to honor? And Haman, because he was an arrogant fool, said he must be talking about me. I mean, we all think that. Hey, you know, what do you think I should do for something? And, and, and Haman goes, you know, what you ought to do is get your favorite horse out, get your favorite robe, get your favorite ring, and then have the, a, an important person in your court Put that person on the horse with your favorite robe, with your favorite ring, and run that guy all around the city proclaiming in a loud voice, so is done to the person the king seeks to honor. And he says, yeah, go do that for your enemy. Now, Haman was switched there. He didn't want it done for his enemy. He wanted it done for him. But that's what the golden rule is. The golden rule is where I do 
what I want done for me for the person who is my enemy. I will treat them in a manner in which I would prefer they treat me. In fact, we might even say they ought to treat me this way. So it's not easy to do. But this is what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying, I want the kingdom of God so overwhelmed in your heart. I want the the values of the kingdom of God, that is the values of Jesus himself, so impressed to the the contours of our own heart that we no longer operate in relationship on whether or not it pays off or not. Instead, we operate on relationship on did Jesus pay off or not. And if Jesus did, then I can extend you love and I can extend you grace and mercy and kindness and even generosity to someone that may not deserve it as far as I am concerned. Look at a couple of things he says that we ought to do. Uh, Second part of verse 21. The one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, I don't customarily wear a cloak and tunic. Maybe you do. I don't know what the fashionable kids are wearing nowadays. But what he's saying here, somebody comes along and they steals your coat, probably because he's cold. And he says, you know what, give him your shirt too. So what happens is, somebody takes something, presumably that they need, you then provide something on top of it they don't really need, and you are left in need. Because a person who gives away his cloak and his tunic is now wearing his britches. He now is shirtless, and now he needs to go home and put on his other cloak and tunic if he is wealthy enough to actually own two of them. So what Jesus is saying here is, no, I don't want you to merely check the box of what does it look like to be Jesus-y to somebody. It is a, a change of mind that says, how do I overwhelm this Yahoo with generosity? He said, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's how King Jesus operates. That's what he does. Look at verses 32 through 36. I'm going to read them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus' love is shown most appropriately to those who we would least expect it, that is, enemies and sinners, because Jesus expressed His love to His enemies and sinners. Why did Jesus express his love to enemies and sinners? Right. That's all there is. What other option does he have? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all that is there is enemies and sinners. So Jesus expresses his love to enemies and sinners. We then experience, by God's grace and kindness, Jesus' love to an enemy and sinner, us. And all he is saying, do that Jesus-y stuff, love enemies and sinners. I'm, I'm hesitating whether I'm going to give this illustration. And I always say that whether or not, now I have to, here we go. Here we go. 
I, I notice sometimes somebody might be honored in the paper or maybe even at a, a memorial service, and they will say something like this. I'm going to get in trouble. He was a loving father and husband. He was a loving father and husband. And what am, what am I getting from this passage? What, you want a medal for that? Like you stood in front of a church, in front of 100 people, and took a vow. I promise to be faithful to my wife unless we, you know, until one of us dies. You stood there in front of an open Bible with a guy wearing a suit, in front of family and friends, and you made this promise. And you want a medal for doing what you said you were going to do? I mean, certainly, I know it's a big deal. We should honor and revere loving and devoted fathers, yes. But is that the bar? Is that you do what you promise? What's Jesus saying here? Jesus' love is he was a loving and devoted member of the community who expressed his love to people who hated him. It was weird. In fact, we talked to him a number of times, tried to have an intervention, tell him he doesn't understand how the world works. But Jesus is saying, look, in fact, look what he says. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you in the kingdom? Think about the kingdom. If you love those who love you, what have you done that is different than any other human that has ever lived? Do you think it requires the, the work of Christ in your heart to love your wife? Don't answer that out loud on my lands. Let, so let me say it this way. Can non-believers have healthy marriages? Of course. Of course. So, so this is not some kind of uh, incredible thing that you had the ability to love somebody who spent every day of their life serving your needs. I mean, that's, that should happen. What Jesus is saying, what happens if you were to love people who didn't like you? What would, what would it look like if you had that rival at work or that rival at school or that rival neighbor who's always bothering you and you loved that person knowing it would never pay off? And Jesus is saying that's what kingdom love is like. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, it's nearly impossible. It requires a miraculous change of the heart by the Messiah, changing us into something else changing us into kingdom kind of people that love enemies and want to serve people who might even uh, persecute us. Look at how he describes it in verse 35. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. That's good. But here's the bigger thing. You will be sons of the Most High. So what this is, is a dad who has taught his son how his family rolls. It's a son or a daughter standing next to the king, and he goes, okay, you got it. You figured it out. By the work of the Spirit, of course. But this is a, this is what this is, is a son who gets how the family operates. That's what he's describing here. You will be sons of the Most High, he, because what is God like? He is kind to the ungrateful. Who is he describing there? Well, just the people in this room. He is kind to the ungrateful. How do we know he is kind to the ungrateful? I have to do the math for you. Are you nice to all the people who are mean to you? Then by definition, you don't truly understand how much Jesus did for you. Because if we actually understood 
the power of the redemption where Jesus died for ungrateful sinners like us, we would be expressing that to others. But to the degree that we hold back from showing love and devotion to our rival, to our enemy, to the one who offends us, it's a barometer that shows our ungratefulness. And that's true for all of us. I'm not throwing you under the bus. Well, a couple of you, but I don't want to look at you. No, I'm kidding. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's us. Jesus was kind. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He's not asking us to earn his favor. He's saying, having been made a son and daughter of the king, do what the family does. Show mercy to those who ought to receive mercy. Look at verse 37. There is no way we're going to be done on time. That's all right. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn, and you, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Verse 39. Can a blind man lead a blind man? What's the answer? Yes, he can just not well. Notice what he says. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log in your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. So Jesus' love is shown when I see myself rightly, when you see yourself rightly. We call that humility. And the only way to be of help to others is when we recognize how much we need Jesus' help. That's what he's saying here, long story short. Judge not, meaning don't stand above others saying, I've got it figured out, you don't. That's a position of condemnation. You can come and associate with me when you measure up to my pristine standards. Jesus is saying, don't do that. There's no room for that in a kingdom marked by humility. He says, look at one another not with condemnation, but instead look at one another with humility and seeing one another uh, rightly. It doesn't mean we aren't honest with each other. He tells us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. Now, pay attention. Did he say not to take the speck out of your brother's eye? No, he, so if your brother's got a problem, this is what the Bible tells us. We go up to our brother, uh, bro, you got a problem. Now, what's the problem with that? We, we need to make sure the two-by-four isn't smacking him in the face as we're trying to have a conversation. If we're coming to our brother and saying, you got a problem, because I want to make sure he knows he's got problems and I don't, that's condemnation. That's missing the point. That's the blind leading the blind. However, if you go up to your brother and say, I, I see something going on in your life, and i got to be honest with you, I'm in the same place with you, and I wonder if we can compare notes and figure this out together. See, that's humility. That's not condemnation. That's humility. That's not the log sticking out my eye. That's two guys coming up to each other and saying, maybe we can figure this out together as we seek the Lord together. We should look out for one another's best interests. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to speak into each other's lives. It just means we do so from a position of humility and love and understanding ourselves rightly. 
Jesus changes us. He changes how we relate, relate to each other. He changes, um, changes our need from needing our relationships to pay off and changes us from no longer needing uh, everyone around us to look at us as though we have made it and instead changes the relationships within the kingdom of God to saying, let's walk this road together. Let's extend love and grace and kindness to one another even when we speak the truth to each other. And we do that because that's what the king values. That's what our father is into. Let's keep going. Jesus changes also how we see ourselves. This is verse, beginning in verse 43. Conrad read this section of our passage this morning. God changes how we, how we relate to others, and God, Jesus changes how we see ourselves. We're going to talk a little bit about character here. So you might want to punch out. No, I'm kidding. Don't. I don't know if you know that I was talking to a police officer one day back in the day when I used to investigate accidents for an insurance company, and uh, we were talking about police reports, and he made a note that on his police reports, he never wrote MVA. MVA. What does MVA stand for? Motor Vehicle Accident. He said, no, it's always MVC, Motor Vehicle Crash. Why? There's no such thing as an accident. Something happened here. Something happened. Somebody was... Uh, driving while looking at their phone, somebody was driving too fast, somebody was driving badly. There's no accident. Now, somebody might say, you know, I didn't mean to crash. Right, nobody, generally we might say, generally people don't, they don't get into their car and say, you know what, I got a 3,000 pound missile here, see what kind of damage I can cause. Nobody's saying I intend to crash, but just because you did something unintentionally doesn't mean it wasn't caused by you. And that's what he's saying. He said, there, there's a disconnect here between the intention of the heart and the behavior on the outside. Character in the Bible is the intentions and values of the heart becoming more and more closely associated with the behavior on the outside. And Jesus here is wanting us to look at our heart and say, what you do on the outside, is that the same as what is going on the inside or not? Christ-like character and action are the pattern of life that we have in the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants us to closely examine our heart. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Are figs gathered from thorn bushes? The answer is no. Are grapes picked from a bramble bush? Again, the answer is no if you're not a, a, a farmer. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What he's saying here is what happens on the outside of us, our behavior, our choices, our actions, our words, flow from what's going on inside. Have you ever done this? Have you ever said something particularly mean? I know, not you. And then you've maybe said, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. That's kind of like saying motor vehicle accident. You, know, you did mean to say it. Something in there. There was something going on in there, wasn't there? And that's the problem. We're never going to really correct what's going on out here as long as we're just trying to behave really nicely. What Jesus is trying to get us to say is, oh, I didn't mean to say that. No, you, you actually did. You don't need to fix what you say as much as you need the, your heart to be changed by the power of the gospel. Fruit in our lives is a product of the inner character. Who we are inside, our identity, is that which determines what is going to flow on the outside. 
So we need our inner character changed by the power of the gospel and Jesus' grace and mercy poured out uh, into our hearts. So Jesus tells him the truth in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? If you have somebody that works for you and he always calls you boss, but he never does what you tell him, you're going to say at some point, stop calling me boss. Why would I stop calling you boss? You don't work here anymore. And that's what Jesus said. Listen, don't call me Lord. If you, don't say Lord Jesus if you don't do what he says. If you're going to give him the title of Lord, that means by definition you want to do what he says. And so then he gives a, uh, a parable which we are all familiar with. A man builds a house. Two men build a house. One builds it with a firm foundation. And the other one builds it without a firm foundation. In the soil of the Middle East, especially when rains would come, the soil would quickly erode. And if you weren't building on something that wouldn't erode by the water, your house could quickly uh, become unstable. And what Jesus is saying is the foundation is established by obedience to the king, by recognizing Jesus is Lord. And we know he's telling this right after everything we've just talked about, meaning redefining relationships. So he's saying, love your enemies. And we say, well, you know, I'm going to really work on loving uh, the people in my family. Good. The man who wants a house that's firmly established will obey my words when it comes to understanding kingdom values. The one who has the strength of character to say, you know, Lord, I'm going to obey you even when it doesn't feel like it pays off and even when it's not comfortable and even when it's not convenient, their house is built on a firm foundation of the strength of the gospel in their lives. And when the storm hits... That person has strength in Christ. One thing I want you to pay attention to, and then we're going to close in Psalm 73. Before the storm comes, what's the difference between those two houses? One guy has a lot of extra time on his hands because he's not having to mess with all that obedience nonsense. So he doesn't have to dig down to the bedrock. He doesn't have to figure out how to keep his house strong. He builds his house, and he's enjoying his house. The other guy is doing all this obedience nonsense. The difference between uh, one guy and the other guy in terms of their two houses, when you look at them, they look exactly the same. What exposes the nature of the house? The storm. So let's look at Psalm 73. I don't have it up on the screen. I'm going to read sections of it. This is what the psalmist says. The psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How did Asaph almost stumble in his relationship with God? He was envious of the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked. Listen to how he describes the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, 4. They have no pangs until death, no pain in their life till death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, I know nowadays that seems like it would be an insult. You wouldn't walk up to somebody, man, you are fat and sleek. Just, you know, you're not going to write that in, a, in an anniversary card, guys. This is, this is not an anniversary verse. You're going to... But back in those days, it was a compliment because it meant a person had enough resource to have more than enough food. And for somebody uh, to be fat and sleek, it, it was, wow, that, that guy must... They're well off. They have, they have enough food that they're well provided for, as we say sometimes in the middle. They're well nourished. Verse 5, 
They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Again, well-nourished. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So these are people who are arrogant to their fellow man, arrogant towards God. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? There's no knowledge in the Most High. Behold, they are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. And listen to what Asaph says, looking at the the prosperous wicked. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He looks at the prosperous wicked and says, why have I been wasting my time trying to do what's right? When it's paying off so well for the wicked, what he's describing here, he's looking at that, the, the house of the man with no foundation and the storm hasn't come yet. So his house looks great. He's got nothing but time on his hands. Verse 16, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to God, and then I discerned their end. Listen to what he describes when the storm comes in. Truly, God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He says, oh, Lord, I'm an idiot. Their end will come. The storm will come. This is not always going to be the case. So finally, he praises God for the relationship he has with God, and this is where the firm foundation is. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist Asaph and Jesus are saying the same thing. The foundation of a a life that is strengthened is a, a life that trusts what Jesus says is true that we have received so much from him, we have relationships with others defined by grace and mercy, even though it's hard. And it will seem like those who aren't living their life that way, everything is paying off for them. And, and we're left with a heart of a life of difficulty and sacrifice. And Asaph and Jesus are both saying, one day the storm will come, one house will endure for all of eternity with their hand gently resting in their Savior's hand, The other one will be swept away. Don't be fooled. The short payoff of this world isn't worth it. Three quick things, and then we'll uh, close with a song. To be able to give and show Jesus' love in, in humility to others, you have to first receive it. Two ideas on this, real quick. First of all, you have to receive it, meaning... To have a heart transformed, to be able to do the impossible, that is show love and affection to our enemies and those who despise us, requires a heart like Jesus' heart. And you can't do that on your own. It requires faith in Jesus for forgiveness for our sins. 
This is why Jesus died on the cross, to give us a new heart. He said, trust in me, I will forgive you, I will take your heart of stone and turn it into flesh. So what Jesus does when we trust him is he gives us the power of his spirit to change what we're like on the inside. So the first step to having relationships informed by a relationship with God is to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Without faith in Jesus, it's completely impossible as far as I'm concerned. Secondly, for those of us who are in Christ by faith, we need to actually experience what it's like to have his grace poured out on us. What do I mean by that? If you are so awesome that you never really need to be forgiven for anything, you will never really experience the power of God's grace. The ones who are able to express grace and kindness to others are those who have experienced the overwhelming rush of Jesus' forgiveness. Now, the fact is, every single one of us needs to experience that, what it's like personally. But sometimes we get so uptight as Christians, we want to make sure that nobody knows what's going on in our hearts and minds, most of all God, because he could never forgive us for whatever is on your mind. Until we finally, by his kindness, experience his grace and say, no, Jesus does actually accept me for who I am. He does actually extend grace to the broken parts of my life. And by his grace, he wants to bring wholeness to those things. When we haven't experienced that acceptance, it's really hard to extend it to others. And that's something that happens by the Spirit, but we should seek it. And we'll never find it as long as we think we're the greatest thing that has ever happened to Jesus. Okay, second thing, I'll move on. The barometer of your experience of God's grace in your life is not how you treat the people who care about you, it's how you treat your enemies. I don't know how to say it nice, so I'm just not gonna. The barometer of how much have I experienced, experienced the grace of Christ, is how do I treat the people in my life when the relationship isn't paying off? And if that's becoming more and more difficult for you, as it is for every person, one of the things we need to do is go back to God and say, God, I need to know what it's like to experience your grace again because I need grace to extend to this person. They may be in your home, they may be at your work, they may be at your school, they may be in your community or in your neighborhood. But if I'm finding myself unable to extend grace to others, it means I need to, I need to seek the Lord. Lord, I need to renew again that experience of grace with you. One question you might ask about this, the, that person that pops into your head when when you think of that one that you struggle with, does our heart break for our rival? Does our heart break for them when, when their life is hard, when things go wrong for them? Or do we write a passive-aggressive Facebook post ends with something like hashtag karma about our rival? I know none of you would ever do that. Do I have to describe what Facebook is? Is that the thing? You're like, what is it? No, I'm not going to do it. Next time I'll make a MySpace joke. That'll be even more remote. By faith in Christ, when we uh, trust Jesus for forgiveness, we receive a new heart. A new heart changes our fruit over time. I don't have to, again, I don't have to say this nicely. That means over the course of our Christian life, our life should bear fruit. The fundamental reality of a changed heart is over time, 
fruit is born. We bear in our lives the fruits of what Jesus is doing in us, the transformed nature of our life. That's not something that happens overnight. But one of the ways you can do this is, is look at your life and say, a year ago, are there things that you were struggling with now that you struggle with a little bit less? And maybe after 10 years, if, if you've been walking with the Lord, you say, you know, there were some things 10 years ago that were a big-time struggle that really now aren't in my life anymore. And you can thank the Lord for that. So one of the things we should be looking for is to say, Lord, how do I love you? How do I express worship to you and affection to you by saying, not my way, but your way, God, and we call that obedience. Now, I know we don't like the obedience words, and I'll close with this just to stay positive. That's me being sarcastic. Jesus doesn't generally have to tell us to do the things we want to do, right? We've, we've talked about that obedience always is somebody saying, I need you to do this, and our default reaction would be, why would I want to do that? You know, I've said this before, but it's the best you don't have to tell me to eat ice cream. If that was the only call of what it meant to be a good Christian, I wouldn't need salvation. Say, you know what? To get to heaven, you need ice cream. Done and done. I'm in. See, I don't need to, but But Jesus comes to us and says silly things that, that are hard to get our head around. Love and pray for your enemy. Love and pray for your enemy. And it was, well, no, that doesn't sound fun at all. Well, that's why it's obedience. Because Jesus is saying, I want you to be like my son and my daughter. Because I love and pray for my enemies. By faith, we get a new heart. What we should be striving for by the power of the Spirit is over the course of our life to see fruit born through obedience. Join me as we pray. God, we thank you for your kindness that in your word, you confront the realities of our hearts. The Lord, we recognize in, in our life, we really do just want relationships that we find enjoyable and fruitful and uh, just to fill our lives with people that we look forward to seeing. And, and then, Lord, the reality is when suddenly those relationships get strained or a little bit weird, suddenly we just don't have time for people. And, God, when we look at your word, we discover that you are asking us to do things differently than the world around us. That you're asking us to express love and mercy and forgiveness and affection and closeness even to those who are difficult for us. God, would you change our heart in that way? Would you make us like you, like kingdom people who love others even when it doesn't pay off immediately? Father, we also pray that as we think about our life and our eternity, that we would yearn more for the things of your kingdom that will last forever than the things of this world that we would build a foundation in our life of obedience to you and your things and your kingdom, knowing that in the meantime, it may seem like it's not paying off. But the payoff, Lord, is a city that is to come. So God, we ask your strength to endure to the very end. God, I would pray for those who are here this morning who came in with, with really no real hope in their life. I pray, God, this morning as we thought about your kingdom that you would move in their hearts to seek their hope in Jesus. Because while we were sinners, you died for us. I would pray even in this moment, they might seek you by faith for forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you for your kindness to us. We can't wait till you come back. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand up as we sing uh, one last song.